Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews you can read covering all eras of films actually, so check that out at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today we're going to be covering the last of this three-part series looking at films of the 1980s in which lovers have to overcome a giant monster in order to be together. The one I'm going to be talking about today is probably the least romantic of the three films. In fact, the romance is probably incidental. The monster has to be overcome, and the romance is kind of a byproduct of the overtaking of that monster. I'm speaking of 1981's Dragon Slayer. It's a fantasy adventure. It's PG-rated because of violence, brief nudity, scary images, and mild language. I would say this definitely would be a PG-13, at least today. It runs one hour and 49 minutes. The main star is Peter McNichol with supporting roles going to Caitlin Clark, Ralph Richardson, John Hallam, and a whole host of others, including Ian McDermott in one of his earlier roles. The director is Matthew Robbins, and Robbins also contributes to the screenplay along with Hal Barwood. Dragon Slayer is set in a fictional British kingdom named Erland. That's back in the 6th century. Peter McNichol is the star. He plays Galen, who is this apprentice to an aging sorcerer named Ulrich, played by Ralph Richardson. Ulrich has been enlisted for help in trying to stop a nearby kingdom's practice of an equinox-related lottery, resulting in a virgin sacrifice to appease a powerful, fire-breathing dragon as a peace accord. Unfortunately, Ulrich can't really make the trip. But he entrusts a powerful amulet to Galen, who soon realizes that the magical artifact gives him some pretty nifty powers, enough to think himself an able wizard, so Galen decides it's time to prove his mettle against the dragon, although his prowess at conjuring may prove to be his ultimate undoing against forces that are far more powerful than he's ever faced before. Dragon Slayer, even though it wasn't really a big hit, was nominated for an Academy Award for its impressive visual effects from Industrial Light and Magic. It did struggle to find an audience upon its initial release. Partially, that's due to being perceived of as a children's fantasy by older audiences. They were trying to increase their market beyond young children's films, likely spurred on by the box office success of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg in the late 70s. So this was the first co-production between Walt Disney Productions and another studio here, Paramount Pictures, who conversely wanted an in into the children's market. And Disney and Paramount Pictures also simultaneously were collaborating with the Robert Altman musical version of Popeye that was released in 1980. This one contains nudity. It does contain violence as well. Dragon Slayer is easily Disney's most PG-13 worthy release up to that point and would continue to be so until they crafted their own adult-oriented production house, Touchstone Films, later Touchstone Pictures, a few years later. However, nudity and scary moments and one particularly gory scene of a dragon feasting made it a bit unpalatable for the tykes who might otherwise have been enthralled by a sword and sorcery adventure in the era of Dungeons and Dragons. Gorgeous landscapes, brilliant practical effects make Dragon Slayer an eye candy lover's delight, even if the tale is a bit familiar. And it's interesting to find that the films would garner a second Academy Award nomination for its score by Alex North. I find that score to be somewhat average at best. There are a lot of people that think it is a masterpiece of sorts. I stray away from that because I think that it recycles some elements of North's earlier work. So it is derivative in that way, but you know, other people will probably take me to task on that. Maybe I'm in the minority there. Reportedly, Steven Spielberg suggested North as the go-to guy for the composer duties. 
It's also scripted by director Matthew Robbins and writing partner Hal Barwood, including some parts spoken in a very convincing ancient Latin. There's comfort for those who enjoy a familiar quest, even if some of the surprises aren't really much, such as there's this girl playing a boy, Caitlin Clark. She looks and sounds a little too feminine not to think so, so I don't think most people are going to be fooled by thinking her character is a boy. And there's one particularly grisly death I didn't think would or ever could happen in a PG-rated film aimed at younger viewers, and if you see this film, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The themes of Dragon Slayer are part and parcel of quest tales, especially in the post-Star Wars era, where there was no shortage of whiny youngsters who discovered that they have the ability to take down the power of the establishment if only they believed in themselves and their abilities. The film also adds to this the evil misdeeds of the rich and the corrupt, especially in the way that they used their power embodied in the king in order to game their own evil system. Rather than just decreeing which of the young virgin women will be sacrificed to the dragon, the king establishes a so-called fairness element in having a lottery, although that lottery is a sham because those rich enough to secretly buy off keeping their daughters from the drawing and enrich the king will do so, while the king even proclaims again in so-called fairness that his own daughter, Princess Elspeth, is subject to the lottery, which we come to learn may not necessarily be the case. Dragon Slayer is actually pretty nicely cast, considering there are no box office draws in the mix of the cast, including handing the starring role to a first-time actor in Peter McNichol. He's an American actor, no less, among a group of predominantly British thespians, except for Caitlin Clark, who's another debut performance as Valerian. Reportedly, McNichol came to find the film an embarrassment, unfortunately, and didn't choose to discuss it when talking about his body of work. Still continues to not really do so as much. Some of the secondary actors in this film are a bit spotty, but the main cast does shine quite well, especially Ralph Richardson as the enigmatic wizard Ulrich. John Hallam also makes for a charismatic and formidable heavy. His world weariness provides a proper counterpart for Galen's rambunctious naivety. But really, it's the dragon here, improbably named Vermithrax Pejorative, that steals the show entirely. This is a massive go-motion hydraulic model, plus a variety of puppets for various modes, including a little bit of computer-generated imagery as well, though mostly kept off the screen until the finale, a la Spielberg's Jaws in that way. This is a truly magical and memorable creature crafted by the wizards at Industrial Light and Magic that hasn't been matched with that level of detail of film until well into the age of computer-generated imagery. In fact, I would say it's probably the best dragon on film. Sorry to Smaug fans and other properties. But beyond that, it always comes back to the problem of failing to find the proper audience. It's too adult for most kids. It's too juvenile to hold the interest of many adults, while teenagers that are in between, who might enjoy this the most, probably thought it was a kiddie flick based on the marketing and the Disney branding. Word of mouth was the worst of it, however. Those who saw it were dismayed at the violence and the gore, and would tell other parents not to take their kids to see the film at any cost. And as a result, the movie failed to earn back its production budget in the theaters. It didn't even crack the top five films of its week of release, or the top 50 highest grossing films of 1981. Nevertheless, it has certainly stood up better than many sword and sorcery films of the 1980s, and it remains rather delightful, if you don't mind the strains of the film's tone from time to time, as well as the disturbing and somewhat gory moments that strain that tone toward the film's climax. 
So for those who love films about dragons and wizards and especially kitschy adventures from the early 1980s, Dragon Slayer has a bit of a cult following that is deserved. And although largely eclipsed in the era of Lord of the Rings films and HBO's Game of Thrones today, for those who watch those properties and are insatiable, I would say Dragon Slayer is definitely worth a look if you want to see more dragons and wizards and a little bit of that medieval charm. So, you know, this is a borderline film for me. I actually used to not like this film, and then I've watched it again over the years uh, multiple times, and I seem to like it more each time. So I would say it definitely has stood the test of time for me. I'm, I've actually turned around a lot, quite a bit on this film. It's a borderline between a three and a three and a half star, but since I've watched it multiple times, and it's still within that realm, and I've liked it more each time, I'm going to go ahead and bump it up to that three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars out of four means I think that Dragon Slayer is a good film. I definitely think it's worth your time if you're at all into these kinds of films of the 1980s, especially sword and sorcery films. And if you really want to see a magnificent dragon, this one has probably the best of them all. Three and a half stars out of four for Dragon Slayer. And that ends this trilogy. We're going to get into another trilogy next. But we're going to stay medieval for our following film if you want to keep up with what I'm reviewing. The next film I'm going to do is called The Black Cauldron. It came out in 1985 and was another medieval set film done by Disney. This one animated. So check that out if you want to keep up with the films before I get to the reviews. The Black Cauldron is the name. Before I go, I do want to remind you of podcasting work that I do outside of this particular podcast. One is the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover new films that are out in the theaters. You can search for that wherever you're listening to this and find it. Also, I did a couple of guest hosting spots on In Session Film, a podcast that I was a member of for a little bit over a year but I filled in for Brendan on that show for a couple of episodes, so check out the episodes containing The Avengers, the one from 2012. We have a retrospective look at that. And also, at the time of this recording, I haven't gotten to it yet, but you probably will hear JD and I talk about The Avengers Infinity War. Yes, that major blockbuster for this year of 2018. So if you want to hear my take on The Avengers Infinity War, you can only hear it exclusively on the In Session Film Podcast. So check out that and that will be episode 271 for those of you who are listening to this well after the fact. So check that out. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. <laughs>